Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. Interviews with elite runners are great, but they can be difficult to relate to. Of course, you'd do all the strength work, get more sleep, and run more miles if you had the time. So let's talk to someone who shares a lot of the same struggles you do, balancing being a mother, working a full-time job, and trying to be the best runner she can be. This week's interview is with Carrie Dimoff, who, in addition to everything mentioned above, is a two-time Olympic trials qualifier in the 3,000 meter steeplechase. While it might seem like too much for a person to maintain, Carrie has done so for several years and is making it work pretty well. Some of the things that Carrie and I talked about included Carrie's training and the strategies she's worked out to balance her family, running, and professional lives, her experiences with running during pregnancy and having faith that you can and will get fit again, Carrie's personal time management strategy, which is based on being fully focused on whatever she's doing at that time, and the work Carrie does as a Nike footwear developer and the process that goes into designing and updating shoes. If you need a little inspiration or even some tips on how to better balance your family work and running, this is the interview for you. We'd like to thank Carrie for her time and wish her and her family the best. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash Carrie Dimoff. I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. So Carrie, thanks so much for being on the show today. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you got into the sport of running? Yeah, great. Well, thank you, first of all, so much for having me. This is super cool. Um, I don't get to do interviews very often. Um, but yeah, so I'm from Connecticut. Um, I grew up in a small town, and track wasn't like a huge deal, but my mom was a runner, and so I was always really interested in, you know, doing what the parents do. Um, so I sort of followed her into the sport. She would run every morning when she put me on the school bus. She'd go for a five-mile run sometimes in the dark or the rain or the snow. Um, so I think it just being exposed to it at an early age was interesting to me. Um, and then I had played team sports, soccer and softball growing up. But um, once I got into high school, I really was looking to find my niche and something that would be just where I could stand out a little bit more. Um, so I just I gravitated toward running and I actually started as a hurdler and a sprinter. Um, they did the 100 hurdles, the 300 hurdles, and the 4x4. Um, it took me a while to start moving up into the distances that really suited me, but I sort of found my love for it, um, yeah, just doing the shorter stuff. And then so how did your career kind of progress through high school and college and, and then afterward? Um, yeah, so I mean, it was just it was fun for me for a while. Um, I really got into the technical aspect of the hurdles within high school my senior year of high school, I started doing the 800 and sort of became obvious to me that I was going to need to move up to the middle distances to become better. Um, I went to Princeton for college and never really intended to run competitively after high school, but I walked on to the cross-country team there and um, sort of grew into it. Um, I started as a 400-meter hurdler on the track and wasn't super awesome at that, so I, I continued to do cross-country training and then moved up um i focused more on the 800 and then eventually into the 3k steeplechase where i could sort of blend my hurdle background with my 
middle distance training. Um, I think for me, like what helped me get better was really just um, having the teammates surrounding me and a coach that, that let me go at my own pace. Um, like I said, I didn't, didn't show up on the team like an all-star recruited. Um, I really just needed to figure out the kind of training that was going to work for me and balance it with my academics. So it was a slow progression, but um, having someone there that really supported me through it was, was really great for my development. Yeah, I think a lot of people could have could have benefited from that. We, there's probably been a lot of really good runners who haven't who never continued with the sport because they didn't have any kind of support like that. So while you were in college, you had quite the injury history, including uh, was it two different broken feet? Yeah, those sounds really dramatic when you say it that way. I had a stress fracture in my heel twice. Um, I think women's steeplechase was still pretty new when I was in school. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Like I was in school from 2001 to 2005. It wasn't like ancient times, but it it was the first few years of the women's steeplechase. We didn't know a ton about the right ways to train for it, specific to women's bodies and women's injury patterns. Um, So I think we probably practiced the water barrier a little bit too much. Maybe did a little bit more mileage than was appropriate for the kind of pounding that we were taking during the race. So um, yeah, I developed a, a chest fracture in my heel of my landing foot, the one that was landing into the pit. Um, and maybe it wasn't even in the right training shoes or the right racing shoes, who knows. But, um, yeah, it was a bit disappointing the first time it happened. I was a junior. I just set the school record. Um, I was really excited for going to our conference meet and then potentially regionals and nationals. But started to feel pain in my foot on one of my long runs and um they thought maybe it was a bone bruise I took a bunch of time off just hoping it would go away and then I arrived at the conference meet ran like two laps and had to drop out it was so painful every time I landed on it so that was a bit of a bummer I had to take a lot of time off during the summer slowly got back into shape but it took me a while my senior year to get back into form um, and then the same thing happened at the end of senior year, just again, probably repeating the same training patterns and the same footwear. And, um, so by the time it happened my senior year, it was almost like, well, I'm kind of done with college now, so it doesn't really matter. I was able to just kind of enjoy the last few months of senior year, really just being a student, not a student athlete. And that wasn't as crushing to me the second time around. Um, there was no rush to get back into shape that time, but. Yeah, um, I felt like I was maybe a little bit fragile in college, but um, I think I've really grown since then and learned a little bit more about my body and about what kind of training is right for me to keep me healthy. So did any of that kind of fuel your desire to end up working for Nike in the footwear department? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I came out to Nike as an intern. Um, I drove from Princeton, New Jersey, out to Seattle with my college roommate. Took a couple weeks. Um, I'd never been to Oregon before. Dropped my roommate off in Seattle, made my way down to Oregon. Started a few days later as a Nike intern, which was just a three-month summer commitment, um, but hoping it would turn into more. And from the first day I stepped on the campus, I knew it was the right fit for me. I just um, needed to feel around a little bit and meet people and figure out what my fit within the company would be. Um, And I started to really gravitate toward running footwear and specifically within running footwear, um, the side that I'm in now, which is development. And that's really the building and engineering of the shoes. Um, we're the team that's really responsible for making sure that the shoes function and that they're 
acting appropriately for the athlete. They're durable. They're not going to fall apart. Um, it's all the things that I cared about, honestly, as an athlete. Um, we were handed a pair of shoes, and I never really thought about what it looked like, but I just wanted it to get me safely through the season. Um, and so I feel really good about the work we do now, trying to make sure that we're giving athletes the tools they need to succeed and stay injury-free and run PRs and be their best. Sounds like a cool job. Tell us about the uh, the training you do now, because you are still you could you could call yourself probably a semi professional athlete. Um, you could. I, I don't really think of myself that way. I think of it as a hobby, but um, I do train quite a lot. Um, like I said, when I finished college, I didn't really think my running career had any place left to go. Um, I was just going to focus on getting a job, but. And coming out here and being around athletes and active people all the time, I just sort of kept going with it, um, which transitioned into trying the 5K on the road and then trying the steeplechase on the track one more time and going into the trials in 08. Um, and then now I've sort of, like, become a mature athlete now that I'm in my 30s, and um, I really just focus on the quality work. So I, I run um, during the cross-country season about – three to five days a week, um, and then I swim twice a week for an hour, which is a fairly intense workout, um, and I do some core work on the side. Um, I only do one running workout a week during the cross-country season, and then during the track season, I do two workouts a week and then a long run. Um, I used to, in college, do three workouts a week sometimes, which was just so much, and it was really hard to recover from, and I think... Um, now that I have the time to set my own schedule, I'd rather do less running, do the quality at a higher level, and take more break in between. Um, I typically run at lunchtime. Um, sometimes I'll run before work. This morning I ran to work, which is about nine miles. Um, but I typically run at lunch, which I think works a bit, works really well with my biorhythms. I feel awake and ready to go at that time. Um, and I have teammates here that I can train with, some guys and some ladies. Yeah, it's been, it's been going really well. So describe for us the process of getting back into shape after uh, after having a child. Because you've got to do that so, twice now. Um, you, as you can imagine, you get pretty out of shape when you have a child. Um, first, you like gain a bunch of weight and you have this extra life form um, inside of you that's um, taking all your blood. Um, so. And then after doing birth, it's about six or eight weeks of no running whatsoever. Um, so my husband, who coaches me, said that we should just treat it like an extended injury. Um, obviously, it's, it's different than an injury, but that seemed like the most logical way to treat it. So um, at first, after I started running again, I did a month or so of just easy running. And when I say easy, I mean slow, I guess. It wasn't always easy for me. Um, mm -hmm. But I started with just a couple miles here and there um, and tried to work up by the end of the month to just running like my normal or a little bit less than my normal run load, like say 45 minutes easy, six days a week or something like that. And then from there, we started adding in speed work. Um, he wanted me to build back like the the fast twitch and not just come back and be able to go long and slow. We wanted to focus on getting the turnover. So the first few workouts I did were just repeats of hundreds. Um, we do standing start like six or nine or 12 hundreds in a row um, with just a quick break in between. And it sounded so easy, but it was actually really hard. Um, I think my, my top speed for a hundred at that point was like 
18 seconds or 16 seconds. Like, it was not fast whatsoever. Um, but it just really helped get the legs back into that fast switch mode. And then from there, we built up into doing more familiar things, um, just, like, taking it easy, getting back into it. But, yeah, um, I would say by the time my my first son was um, three or four months old, I was back to running what felt like regular regular volume for me. And then when he was about four, four and a half months old, I did a half marathon down in San Francisco. Um, and I won that, which wasn't expected, but, um, but I felt really good by that point. So I think after the initial couple of weeks of getting back into it, my body came around more quickly than I expected. And we had a, uh, actually we had a question recently on another podcast about from a woman named Amanda about, running and then other activities during pregnancy. Can you give any yeah. insight on that? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, you hear it so often, but it's just different for everyone. Um, having For me, having come off a couple of years of running really competitively, I look forward to pregnancy as kind of a break from that intensity. Um, you know, when you're training for an event and you have these regimented, like, Wednesday is workout day, Friday is this, and then there's weights, um, it was really refreshing to during pregnancy just be able to listen to my body. And sometimes I would feel great. Um, I would go for a run and, you know, an hour would feel awesome. And then the next day, two miles would feel like a struggle. So um, I could see it being really frustrating. But honestly, for me, it was kind of nice just to be able to say, yep, two miles is going to be great today. And tomorrow I might not even run. Um, with my first one, I, I tried to stay as active as I could throughout the whole pregnancy. I think some of that was just stubbornness and not wanting to give up my physical fitness. Um, but I would run even if it was just a mile, and then I'd have to take a walk break and run another half mile. Um, I did that all the way up until the ninth month, um, and I did a lot of swimming, again, just really to feel like an active person. With my second one, I think I let go a little bit of that, and probably after the seventh month, I didn't. I didn't do too much. I would swim every couple of days, but, um, yeah, it's just every, every one, I guess is different. And, um, the only advice I would give is just make sure that you're listening to your body and you do come back really well afterward as long as you're taking care of yourself. And, um, there's really not a lot of fitness to be gained during pregnancy. So, um, I think shouldn't stress too much about, about trying to hold on to it. It sounds like pretty good advice. Um, obviously, I wouldn't know anything about it, but I would imagine <laughs> a lot of. I imagine that would help a lot of women who who want to stay fit and and want to keep going, but under, starting to kind of have to understand the hard way that it's not uh, not really possible. So well, and you, I think there's a lot of natural anxiety, that, especially the first time around. Like you see yourself getting bigger and bigger, and you just have no clue what your body is going to look like after you have this baby or how much time you're going to have to exercise. Um, but I think I, I was really lucky that I had a lot of um, really good friends who had babies right before I did. And I watched them like running PRs on the track like a year after giving birth and, um, you know, like qualifying for races that they never qualified for. So it really inspired me to have the confidence to relax during pregnancy, just knowing that it will come back. Like it is just almost the same as an injury where you might be set back for a while, but, um, bodies are really good at recovering. That's the truth. So also tell us about being coached by your husband. That's, um, that kind of relationship exists, but it, uh, it's always one that people talk about having to be careful of. 
Yeah, it's been, it's worked out great for me, obviously. Um, I think John is kind of a natural coach. Um, he went to the Olympic marathon trials three times and obviously knows running really, really well. Um, but what works the best for us is just that he's really aware of how I'm feeling and, um, he'll come out to the track with me. He'll write the workout and then he'll come out to the track and do it with me. Um, if he's nursing an injury or, um, you know, something's not feeling right, he might just come and time me or he might do part of an interval. Like if we're doing 800s, maybe he'll run the first 600 and drop out or something like that. But, um, he's great at helping me mentally get through workouts where if I'm struggling, um, he'll just know the right thing to say to get my mind back in it or um, he'll adjust the workout in some way so I can feel like I've beaten the workout and not let it beat me, um, which is one of his favorite things. But, um, yeah, just having, I think, um, the years that we've been together and worked together as coach and athlete, um, I've built up such a trust that if, if he writes the workout, I know I'm capable of doing it, um, which is another way that, helps me achieve the workout if you write something that sounds really hard my first instinct is always to be like oh my gosh that's not going to happen today but then I realized like he never writes something that I can't do um he just knows my fitness really well um so it's been cool to see that and like I said it's as the trust has developed over the years more and more I think it's actually enabled me to um have more confidence going into workouts but otherwise I might sort of mentally check out of early on thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to get that done. Fair enough. So we're kind of, we've kind of been dancing around this question, but here's kind of the elephant one. Um, how do you manage a full training schedule like this with your full-time job and your two kids and your family and everything else you do? Yeah, um, that's a hard one. I mean, <clears throat> I feel like it's kind of the hot topic right now anyway nationally is like can women have it all can you do all the things and really do a good job at all of them or really feel fulfilled or you know where, where what are you dropping along the way and it, it is hard I mean I feel like um at any any one moment it's the success of all three things the job the family and the training are like a fine balance, like being on a tightrope. And if any one of them goes into crisis, like everything, you know, comes crashing down. It's like a delicate card tower or something. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, um, you know, work um, has been really understanding. My manager is fantastic. Um, he's a super running fan, was a marathoner himself. So whenever I have a big event coming up, he's always great about um you know, letting me have the time off for the travel that I need or supporting me if I need to do, take a two-hour lunch break to get a workout done. He always encourages me to to keep going with my passion for running. On the family side, having my husband as coach means that if he writes me a two-hour long run on the weekend, he pretty much knows what he's getting into. Like, that means that I'm going to be gone for two hours and he's going to watch the kids. But, I mean, I think it's just natural. Like, you always have a little bit of that guilt, like, well, if I wasn't going for my run, I could spend a little more time with my kids or I could work a little bit harder on that presentation. Um, and oh, if I didn't have the kids to look after, I could be doing so much more napping and recovery. And I don't know. I think I've always just been a person that's naturally inclined to want to be busy and want to do a lot of things. I like having the time filled. Um, and also, I, I think you just, have to remember that a lot of times the support staff just sort of steps up and fills in. So I have full-time daycare while I'm at work and 
Um, we have my husband and his family are around, so if I'm traveling for a, a track meet or something, John will often bring the kids over to his parents' house and they'll all hang out. Yeah, I think it's... And if I have to go away from work for a track meet, like, my coworkers will step in and answer emails for me. So a lot of it is just sort of trust, um, you know, will, letting yourself commit fully to something and then trusting that it'll, it'll all work out. Um, I think if you are too worried about not being able to get it done or the consequences, then you never really engage with the challenges, right? That's an interesting perspective on it. It reminds me of, um, like what you were saying, reminds me of, I forget which old school college coach I was reading about who was talking about, you know, you can have running, you can have school, and you can have a social life. Pick two of them. Because mm-hmm. all three is just not going to work. But you seem to have made it work just fine. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's always that wonder and that guilt. Like, if I had two things instead of three, would I be doing the two things better than they are? Would I have been promoted earlier? Would my kids be happier? Would my running be better? I don't know. You never know. But um, I think you just have to do the things that feel right to you and um, go with your gut. And if your gut says that you really want to try to do all the things, then... um, I don't know. Maybe you just accept that you're you're never going to be perfect. Um, I thought about after the after I made the Olympic trials for the first time, people probably jokingly were like, "Oh, you should try to get a contract. Like, see if Nike will find you, and don't work, just run." And I was thinking to myself, like, "Okay, I was just ninth at the Olympic trials, and if I quit my job and train full time, and I came back to the Olympic trials in four years, like, maybe I would be sixth, fifth, fourth, like." how much better would I be and would I be that much happier? What kind of returns would I get on this investment? Um, and as it was, I, I kept my job and I had two kids and I came back and I was six. So, I mean, I feel like for Obviously. me, that was a, a good enough achievement. Um, I don't know that I was really ready to, to invest all in on one thing. I, I kind of like to keep, keep my hands in a lot of different stuff. I think that's, yeah, that's, a, I, I very much like that perspective where, You just have to kind of commit and admit that you'll never be perfect at any of them. So do you have any kind of, what kind of specific maybe time management advice do you have? Because as you said, that's kind of the hot topic around, around women's running these days. Yeah. um, I mean, I think you just have to, you just have to make the most of the time you have. Um, I work with professional runners all the time and, I'm well aware of all the stuff they do that I don't like. I don't ice. I don't do yoga. I don't get massages. I don't take naps. Um, but I think rather than focus on the things you're not doing, you just have to um, make the most of what you can. So if I go for a run at the track, I almost feel like I I work that much harder to make sure that it's a good workout than someone who has all the time in the world. Their coach might say, oh, you don't really have it today. Let's come back tomorrow. Like I don't have that option. The workout has to happen today and it's going to be great because I only do one workout a week, so it better be great. Um, and I, I feel like just having that real focus and drive to get things done in a limited amount of time makes me better at what I'm doing. Um, sometimes I even find myself out there on the track and I'll be like thinking about my kids during the intervals and I'm like, okay, you're sacrificing this time with your children. Like you better like do this for the kids, like be better at what you're doing. If you're going to focus your time on running, you might as well be excellent at it. Um, and then same thing with work. Like I probably, um, you know, I have coworkers that work longer hours than I do because they don't have families. They don't have 
things that they do during the lunch hour. Um, so I just try to work as smart as I can to get things done in the time that I'm there. Um, and I have to take some things home sometimes. But really just um, like being present at what you're doing at the time. Um, I was thinking about this the other day with my kids. I can't always make all the field trips and I can't always be with them all the time on the weekends if I'm traveling. But um, I try to do little things like go have lunch with them at daycare when I can or, you know, go to the Berry Patch field trip. Um, if we're just hanging out on the weekend, then we spend a lot of time just being together. I take them to the water slide or I take them just to go walk around on the trails near our house so that they feel like when they're with mom, mom is really fully there with them. I'm not checking my phone or thinking about work um, or doing some sort of core exercises on the floor. Like I'm really playing with them and, and being with them. Um, I think multitasking is another thing that people have been talking about lately. Are we really good multitaskers? Is it better to just focus on one thing? And for me, I feel like I do a lot of things, but I try not to do them overlapping at all. I try to really focus just on one thing at a time. Yet another, a little different perspective, but a very, uh, but a very good one, I think. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, I know you might not be able to say everything, so just answer whatever you feel comfortable, but can you describe the work that you do at Nike for us? Yeah, so um, I'm a track and field footwear developer, so I work within the running division of Nike, um, and my focus is specifically around making products for track and field, so um, everything from sprint shoes, steeplechase, distance, but also pole vault, long jump, whatever. Um, We also do road racing as well. And within the team, my focus is development. So we work on a team with design, development, marketing, and then also testing and costing and some other functions. Um, But development is really kind of the project manager. Um, We keep everyone on track toward the timelines, and we're really focusing on the building of the shoe. So taking the designer's visual, the aesthetics, the concept, um, as well as the marketing person's feedback on who the consumer is for the shoe, which is pretty straightforward in track and field. You kind of know who you're building the shoe for. Um, but And then we really try to bring that to life. So what material are we going to build this out of? Um, it needs to be strong yet lightweight. Track spike, it needs to be the right amount of stiffness and flex. Um, you know, we, we send the shoes out to be tested with athletes. We get their feedback and we might hear that it's um, it's too stiff and it hurts their foot or the collar, the area around their ankle is too high or they just um, feel like it's a little heavy. And then we make adjustments along the way with the goal of bringing a shoe to the marketplace, to the store that a kid can pick up and take home and run awesome times in. You kind of went into it a little bit. Is there anything else that Anything, anything more specific you can talk about that goes into kind of the design and development of a shoe? Because that's, as you, as I'm sure you're aware, that's the, uh, you know, the thing that people talk about the most with running equipment wise and the thing they're always the most concerned about. Yeah. I mean, it always, um, it comes, it comes from insight. So, um, like we're always watching, we're going to watch the Monaco diamond league today on TV. Um, people are, yeah, we're going to see what people are watching, or sorry, see what people are wearing out on the track. Um, we're always curious about when a Nike-sponsored athlete isn't wearing their product, or maybe they're wearing their product, but they've modified it in some way, like they've cut a strap off, or they've redone the laces. I mean, the athletes are providing us the feedback, um, sometimes with vocally and sometimes just by what they're doing with their shoes. 
So we're always striving to make the things better. So we start with insights like that. Um, maybe we've seen that, like one from a couple of years ago, is that there was, um, I think it was a jumping shoe, and it had a shroud over it that covered the laces. And one of our um, teammates noticed that the athletes were cutting the shrouds off. And so we talked to them a lot, and they found that it was really just getting in the way. And it looked cool, but um, it was hindering the performance. So we re-engineered the, next, the shoe the next time around to not have the shroud. Um, so we start with those, those insights. The designer has some inspirations or some themes that they want to bring into the line to give it a new aesthetic look. Um, oftentimes, our, our new models are influenced a lot by just new ways of making and new technologies, which are improving every year. Um, and so we try to incorporate these new lighter weight materials or just new ways of building that, that are better for the environment. Um, so sometimes it's little tweaks, but often um, we're really just trying to advance advance the performance of a shoe. So um, as I'm sure you've heard, probably the biggest complaint out there about shoes is that they uh, they change and get updated every year. And I hear this right. a lot too, you know, working in a running store and everybody's like, well, you know, it was, it was an awesome shoe, but they changed it. And so what, what, what goes into the process of updating a shoe? Like why, like, how do you decide what different things to do? Is it just kind of what you were just, what this just describing? Pardon me. Yeah. I mean, we have sort of a general um, framework planned out in advance so that we can manage our workload. We can't update all whatever 33 track and field models all at once because that would that would just be too much and too hard. So we have sort of a general cadence that we like to follow. Like every two years, we might update the um, well, maybe it's like every two to four years, we might update the most commonly used shoes. Um, and then a shoe like a throwing shoe might only get updated every five or ten years, just because there's not a lot of people buying it. Um, and I know it's new to people, like often we just update them for the sake of updating, like, oh, it's got to look new, it's got to be fresh. But um, like I said, it, there's really like new materials being developed all the time. Um, we're working so hard with our factory partners on making things better, um, like less expensive ways of doing things so that we can add more valuable assets to the shoe. Um, if we're spending less on certain processes, then we can do more. Um, if you do look at a Nike running or racing shoe from 10 years ago versus one for today, like they just look like, I don't know, so much more advanced. Um, and just, yeah, some of the stuff is following the athlete insights and some of it is just the incorporating new ways of manufacturing so we can make these lighter, stronger shoes. I can attest to that because I have a couple of pairs of Nike, of Nike racing shoes from, let's say, five years ago. And they're... Yes, they are very different and look kind of. I thought I thought they were really, really they were really cool and they looked really advanced when I got them. And now, of course, seeing all this stuff all the time, it's like, well, this kind of looks mediocre at yeah. this point. <laughs> so but it's can... always a balance. Like, um, you know, sometimes we we're in a hurry to incorporate the latest technology and we put it in the shoe and it looks awesome, or it it does get a lot lighter. But then we talk to the athletes and they're like, well, maybe it was it was actually too light, or maybe. Um, it looks great, but it actually wasn't durable enough. I love the translucency of the material, but it rips all the time. So um, we're always learning. It, it takes us about 18 months from when we start working on a shoe to when it gets into the marketplace, um, which sounds like a long time, but actually with all the stuff that we have to do, sometimes you just do the best you can in those 18 months, and then you say, okay, next time we update it, we're also going to try this and this and this. So um, there's a lot of learning that goes on, and 
our team rotates through maybe about every Olympic cycle. So um, I'm somewhat new to working on track and field. Um, we've had a couple other guys in the past doing it. So a new person comes into the team. They have new insights, new ideas, new relationships. Um, and, yeah, you just get different perspectives. But I think oftentimes we we do challenge ourselves to look back at what we've done in the past and say, is the new stuff really better? Um, sometimes we have athletes that are continuing to request us to make their old shoes from <laughs> five, six, ten years ago. Um, you know, you might notice the athletes still wearing the marathon or the streak three, and um, sometimes it's just their particular foot fits that shoe better. Um, but sometimes they're trying to tell us that they really don't think the new stuff is as good. So we work really hard with them when we develop our new product to make sure that um, they're they're giving us their honest feedback and that um, we are improving it every time. So what's a crazy experience you've had while working on a shoe? There's got to be some interesting stories. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, nothing's super crazy yet. Um, the most exciting for me was um, when Shalane Flanagan was going to run her first marathon in New York. She had all, obviously, all the Nike racing shoes to choose from. Um, you know, she's one of our top athletes, and so, of course, we wanted her to be in all the newest stuff. Um, but she was new to the marathon and just didn't really know what she wanted. So Jerry was telling us that she would show up at the field where they do their training runs with, like, a bag and dump out, like, six pairs of shoes. And he was like, oh, my God, Shalane, like, simplify, simplify. Um, I remember this story. It, it I got up to, like, this. a a couple weeks before the marathon and um, she had st- like maybe two shoes that she was choosing between and we got a call like really close to the marathon that like, oh, Shalene actually wants to try one more shoe and we were like, oh my gosh, what happened? But um, but I guess, like I said, she was new to the marathon and I guess she'd gone on a super long training run and found that after 20 or so miles, her feet started to need a little extra support. They just started to respond differently to the shoe she was in. So um, we got her a few models that we make specifically for Japan. We, in the past, have had a whole racing line that just goes to their retail. And she tried a few of them um, and ended up racing in this shoe called the Lunar Spider, um, which was a Japan-specific, super, super minimal shoe. And she obviously did just great. She got second place in her first ever marathon. Um, But it was like nerve-wracking right to the end like what is she gonna wear I'm like oh my gosh it was pretty exciting though to see her choose that I remember that uh a very similar story coming out of uh I think in a Boston newspaper this past April funny (laughs) yeah a little bit so as if you didn't already have enough to do you already you also play kind of a major role in the, is it the Bowerman Athletic Club or the Bowerman Track Club? Or are those the same uh, thing Yes, now? we've just rebranded. Um, we are okay. the Bowerman Track Club now. Okay. I wasn't really sure. So you play a pretty major role in that. Um, tell us about that as well. Yeah, so um, the Bowerman Track Club, um, I think it was founded in about 2003, just as an employee running club for Nike employees. We have satellite clubs around the world. Um, I think there's one in Taiwan and one in Korea and anywhere that we have Nike offices, they, they have these clubs. And generally it was just, um, you know, the, the local clubs would have fun runs and stuff, but it was not, not much more than employee running. Um, over the past few years, we've expanded that to include the community. And some of my coworkers have really made a big push to get kids involved. And that's where we've actually had the most growth and success. So we now have um, a huge kids cross-country program and a track training club. Um, they come out 
sometimes to campus, sometimes they train elsewhere, but um, they race in these um, junior Olympic and um, age group races throughout the fall, and then a team of, I want to say, almost 100 goes down to the um, youth track championships in December and competes in all the different age group levels. So that has been super cool. Um, my role lately has been sort of coordinating around the elite women. Um, we have seven of us that race on a similar level to myself where um, we generally also have jobs, but we try to compete in like national level competitions. Um, and then we've recently merged with um, Jerry Schumacher's group, the, so they're the professional level of our club. And they have a couple women, but mostly guys. Um, and we've sort of just been working lately on what does it look like for us to have youth all the way up through professional, and how do we interact, all of us as a group. Um, but it's been fun sort of getting the club jump-started and trying to become more active in the community and find ways to give back. So do you have an answer for how youth through professional does interact? Well, so that does professional sound very guys have been helping out with coaching. So um, it's been super cool for the kids, I think, to have some of these pros show up and run their workouts with them, just do stretching, um, just spend time with them. Some of them, I mean, when I was in sixth grade, I couldn't have told you a single professional runner, but some of them, you know, they live in Portland, Oregon. They're pretty aware. Their parents work at Nike. Um, so they know who Chris Linsky and Shalane Flanagan are. Um, and they're, they're excited. I think it really spurs them to want to be more competitive and they want to grow up to, to be like that, to be super excellent runners. Um, and I think it's really helped the youth have kind of a purpose um, to be in these training groups. Um, then we also put on a 5K every summer that raises money for um, a charity called the HN Uganda Children's Fund. Um, and so the pros will come out to that and sign T-shirts and give stuff away, um, just kind of draw, draw some attention. And a lot of the kids will come out and run They'll tell their friends. So we, we try to have almost all levels involved at all the events. Um, and we're working on a new website at this point where we'll have all the, all the different levels have bios and some descriptions. So maybe a, a fan comes to look up information about his favorite um, Bowerman Track Club professional runner, but then also stumbles onto this like sub-elite level and realizes, oh, maybe I could actually start training with them or they learn more about the kids stuff and then they want to get involved with coaching or maybe they have their own kids and they want to send them out. So I don't know. We're working on it. No, that sounds really cool. And actually leads pretty well into my next question. Um, so as you're no doubt aware, also there's a lot of people in this country that run, but very, very few of them could tell you who any professional, you know, professional U S runners are. What do you think we can do to help make more of these runners into, you know, fans of the sport, actually? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, Another hot I topic in running today. The, I do think there is kind of something to um, having uh, a track club that is all-inclusive, like youth all the way up to professional. Um, in theory, it, it sounds like it would work out pretty well if, you know, you start running and you're part of your local area track club, say it's Bowerman Track Club, and then um, you see these elite guys that are sort of on your same team, and then you start cheering for them because they wear your kit, your uniform, you recognize them, um, you kind of know their names, and then there becomes a little bit of rivalries with the guys that they're running against, and suddenly you care, 
whether or not this guy beats this other guy because one of them's on your team and one of them is his opponent. Um, I think having more of these kinds of clubs where runners aren't, the professional runners aren't so isolated from um, the fans, the children, and maybe the sub-elite type runners um, might give people some more connections and some more reason to watch, more reason to cheer if they have an investment in who the elites are. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, that, that I hadn't thought about that before, but that does make a lot of sense. Um, a lot of stuff I've read, that, that's kind of the way, I don't know if it still does, but that's kind of the way it used to work in Europe, was yeah. kids would join their local athletic club at age 10, 11, 12, whatever it was, and they would pretty much work with the same coach and in you know, the same training system through when they've decided to stop running. Sometimes that was in their 20s, sometimes that was in their 60s. Wow. But, but it was still all the same group and and all and all the same and all the same people from the same town. So I th- I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I did forget to mention earlier we also have a masters team. Um, I figured as and it's much. It's funny because some of them, um, you know, they might be in their forties and they have kids that are in you know in the age group like age six to twelve or something. So. They, masters guys will be competing in a cross country championship and then flying to watch their kids compete the next day somewhere else. Um, so it kind of becomes a whole family affair, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's still somewhat limited to within the running community. I think it's a bigger issue when you try to talk about how to get your average American sports fan engaged in running. But um, but there are a lot of people that participate in running, and I think there's an opportunity to get those people more engaged. I think that's absolutely true. Um... There's, you know, organizations like, I think it's, I think in, you know, the, the Atlanta Track Club, who, yeah. of course, are the New York Roadrunners, who, of course, organize umpteen events in their respective cities all the time and have huge membership bases. It's, it's something to, I think it's something that, you know, the higher ups in the sport should try to, should maybe try to look at. It seems like yeah, a good opportunity. Yeah, sure. And I think the, um, the Eugene running company, running community is, of course, a great example, um, Kids grew up there surrounded by Hayward Field and the Legends of Oregon. And the Oregon Track Club has youth and masters and all those levels as well as the professionals. So um, there are some good models out there, I think. And maybe they'll start to grow and have some influence over the rest of the country. Yeah, the question is just how to get it out of Oregon. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so I just have one more thing I want to do. Um, these... <laughs> This is uh, a thing I finish all my interviews with. It's just a quick series of five questions. So number one, what's your pre-race meal? Oh, see, this is one of my uh, one of my tricks is that I don't like to have routines because then there's okay. the possibility that the routine gets disrupted and it throws you off. So, um, so you purposely general, don't have one. I don't, I don't like to have a, a specific pre-race meal. Okay. What is your favorite workout to do? Um, okay, my favorite workout on the track is, um, it's a 3K tempo, followed by 3 to 5 times a K, followed by um, 400s and 200s. So the 3K tempo is sort of like to get you warmed up. It's, um, I generally do it at 10 minutes for the 3K, which is 80 seconds, and it doesn't feel that easy, but um, kind of gets my heart rate really going. And then the K repeats, the thousand meter repeats, are really the meat of the workout. And then the fours and twos for speed. Sounds like kind of a bear. <laughs> it's great. You get to change it up a lot within the workout. It's fun. I like it. So, what's your favorite race event you've ever done? Oh, 
Um, I mean, I had such a great experience at the uh, steeplechase and the Olympic trials in 2008 that I was convinced that I was going to retire right then. Like, I think I did an interview with Runner Space or Flow Track right afterward, and they were like, so what comes next? And I was like, I'm done. This is it. How can I top this? Um, <laughs> so I think that, I mean, it was my first Olympic trials. It was just amazing being in Oregon, like, in front of my coworkers and my friends, like, it was super cool to come back and qualify again in 2012 and even finish a little bit higher, but just that, like, initial event, like, the surprise of making it to begin with, the surprise of then making the final, and that was really cool. Um, I just want to add on to that one a bit. Um, more power more power to you. Not all of us have the opportunity to go to the Olympic trials. Any, uh, any like, particular road race or track event uh, that somebody else might be able to do that, you, that you've really had a good experience at? Um, I really loved the um, San Francisco half marathon, the Nike women's in October. It's beautiful terrain. Like you run all around the hills of San Francisco, finishing Golden Gate Park. And they do a great job with the expo. Like it just feels like a whole bunch of like your rest girlfriends getting together. So that one is my favorite road race. And what do you do for fun in all your spare time? Um, I love to do stuff with the kids. I think I'm just like still like six years old at heart or something, but, um, my kids and I like to go for hikes around our house. We have a trail that I think our neighbors just made. I don't even think it's a real trail. Um, but we call it coyote trail and we walk Hmm. around and bring the backpacks, go for hikes, um, play Legos. Like, I don't know. I just love to do little kid stuff. And finally, what race event would you love to run but haven't got a chance to? Uh, I kind of want to do the New York Marathon. My whole family is from Connecticut and New York, um, and I've totally had plans in my head for years to do it. Um, so that would be kind of my dream race to do someday. Well, very cool. You're uh, you're not alone among people I've asked that question to. <laughs> a couple different ones have said that. I mean, Boston would be cool too, but for me, there's something special, like a draw toward New York that I would, I would really love to do that one. No, I get that. I'm a, I was all, I was a history student. I get it. <laughs> the appeal of the nostalgia and all that. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's all I have for you today. So Carrie, thank you very much for your time and we, uh, we wish you the best of luck in future footwear development and running. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I, again, I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.